HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Brooklyn Slate Company, a manufacturer of slate cheese boards. Co- Today's program is brought to you by Brooklyn Slate Company, a manufacturer of slate cheese boards, coasters, and other fine items. For more Laura- information, visit brooklynslate.com. I'm Laura Stanley, host of Inside School Food. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Oh, yeah, it's Monday, and that means it's time for What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. We're going to talk about cider this week, um, because last week was Cider Week, and just to keep that ball rolling, uh, I invited a couple of cider makers and and, uh, orchardists to come on the show with me today. Um, The first is Ian Merwin. He is the Professor Emeritus of Horticulture and a grower and cider maker at Black Diamond Farm. He spent 14 years in the California horticultural industry and then completed his PhD in pomology, who knew, and plant ecology, uh, and subsequently worked uh, at Cornell University as a research and teaching professor until just recently, 2013. And since 1992, he and his wife have run a 64-acre family farm in Trumansburg. And they grow wine grapes, peaches, plums, sweet and tart cherries, and more than 125 apple varieties. Again, who knew? Black Diamond Cider makes six hard cider blends. My other guest is Dan Wilson. He is the proprietor of Slybro Cider House and Hicks Farm, and he's a longtime grower and cider maker. Uh, both he, uh, both Dan and Ian serve on the New York State Cider Association. Um, so welcome to the show, you guys. Thanks so much for joining me today. Hi, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. So um, who was that? Identify yourself uh, so we know yeah. whose voice is whose. Okay. And Ian, let me hear you. I'm uh, Here I am. Okay. Very good. Just so I know who's talking. <laughs> uh-huh. um, so, um, guys, give me an idea of what's happening in the cider industry. Like, how did, how did Cider Week get going? I mean, that's, I know it's been going on for a few years, but uh, it seems to be really growing in scale. I noticed that my local, one of my local restaurants, for instance, was featuring Cider Week. Um, and obviously a bunch of different ciders. Um, how did how did all that get started? Yeah, nobody. Uh, jump in, Ian. Resurgence, but it's it's just been exploding. It's been the fastest increasing sector in the alcoholic beverage industry since about two thousand. Wow. And Dan, what were you going to say? 
No, I, I agree. Um, uh, cider is, uh, or uh, Cider Week uh, happened, um, I, I believe the first one was about four years ago. Uh-huh. And it was an effort by uh, the Glenwood Institute up in Hudson Valley to uh-huh. help promote the, uh, the burgeoning uh, New York cider industry. Uh, and since then, I think uh, they, they probably had a little bit of influence on the growth of cider and, uh, and bringing it more to... Um, uh, to a broader range of consumers, but uh, that kind of happened in conjunction with just a national uh, explosion and in the interest in cider. Um, so it's uh, it's great to be a part of that. I can imagine. So I mean, since it's only really been in the last few years that cider has has you know, as you say, exploded. Um, you guys have obviously been making cider for longer than four or five years. What what got you into it, even when there wasn't a market? Like, what made you want to become cider makers? Well, if you well, I'll, I'll start. I'll, um, uh, Wait, my, one uh, at a time, we boys. We started here at Hicks Orchard and Slyboro Cider House in about the year 2000, experimenting with hard ciders. Uh, our farm has been uh, very much focused on on, uh, on adding value to our, our crops and to also invite people here to the farm to have an experience, and we've been doing that since about 1905. So it's a long tradition in, uh, in, in, uh, in growing and developing that way. The thing that really interested us in hard cider, though, is that it, it creates so many um, uh, opportunities for creativity in, uh, in adding uh, uh, you know, or kind of exploring what qualities are inherent to apples when you ferment them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also the, the kind of people it puts us in touch with and, uh, and a, a different range of, of consumers. Um, so it seemed like a, a logical choice for us. Mm-hmm. And Ian, what about you? You, you? you stopped teaching and started just doing apples and cider well, I started making cider actually in 1985 when I moved back from California to work mm-hmm. at Cornell. Uh, it's the local beverage. It's what you do around the Finger Lakes in uh, October. You, mm-hmm. know, you fill up your pickup truck with apples and go to the local cider mill. So uh, at first it was just a, a cultural thing. Um, we've been growing apples since the late 1980s and if you grow apples, it's really a good idea to make cider because there are always a lot of apples that, for whatever reason, you know, they're not uh, dessert or fresh market. Uh, maybe they've got a little ding or they're a little too small or it's a variety that isn't selling. And so if you can make cider, which is a value-added product, it, it just makes your whole farming operation a lot more sustainable and efficient. That makes total sense to me. Um, what what What... Since it's it's a local, it's obviously a local and cultural thing. But it, how did you get? Was it Cider Week that got other consumers interested? Did you find restaurants that would partner with you, or if it became popular in farmers markets? Are there any rules about selling an alcoholic beverage in a farmers market? Like, was that a problem? Dan, you want to go Dan? on that? Well, not for us. I, uh, farmers markets have been uh, a nice uh, venue for us. I. I think, you know, part of the logic for us in, in making hard cider was that we could have a product that we could sell in farmer's markets and, and even more broadly, and also have something that wasn't quite as seasonal as just selling fresh apples and fresh apple cider. Um, and um, so farmer's markets were a good venue. Um, I, I think that one of the things that, that helped was the uh, the increasing interest in, in uh, um, locally um, – sourced products, and, mm-hmm. and um, cider was, uh, in New York State is, is such a huge apple-growing state, um, 
and, and uh, the interest in hard cider was, I think, just an extension of uh, the, uh, the the quality of products that, that we can grow here. Mm-hmm. And so um, just to, to take that a little further, how much acreage is devoted to apples in New York State? I know we're one of the biggest producers in the in the country, if not the world. But is it? Am I inaccurate in saying that? Do we produce as much as, say, China or oh, no. Chile? No, nobody's close. China, China actually, grows. but we're, we're no. number two in the United apples States in the world at this point. Uh, New York State in terms is of uh, uh, apples grown per state. Can you guys uh, not US. hear each other? And I'm having a hard time hearing you. Thousand acres of orchard in New York with uh, about 750 commercial growers. 750 commercial growers in New York State, as opposed yep. to, um, we'll stay with you for a second, Ian, as opposed to Washington State, which is the other big apple vector. Yeah. <clears throat> Washington State uh, has, they produce about uh, four, almost four times more than New York does, but their industry is very different. It's more, there are fewer small growers and more very large kind of uh, corporate-owned orchards. Mm-hmm. And so um, they're growing Granny Smith's and, and Red Delicious, yeah, the popular yeah, eating varieties. And they're growing apples in a very different climate. The primary growing region for apples in Washington is the Yakima Valley, Columbia River Basin. That's a high desert area, very hot, mm. uh, lots of sun, no rain during the growing season. Uh, so they, it's that climate really produces very different quality in the fruit, and we're in, in New York and New England, we've got actually a much better climate for growing cider fruit. We get more acidity, more flavor, and a lot of the traditional apple varieties from Europe and North America that are, that are best for making hard cider actually do better in a cooler, more humid growing season. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Um, <clears throat> How much does the cider economy uh, contribute, do you think, to New York State? Maybe I'll ask you, Ian, that question. Um. <laughs> yeah. Uh, honest answer is we don't know. Uh, really? It's such a, a relatively new industry uh-huh. uh, that there aren't good statistics on. Uh, we know there's around 60 commercial cider makers in the state now. That's almost twice more than any other state. Um, we have numbers about sweet cider, fresh cider production, but right. we're actually just now trying to get the, the economic data on, you know, exactly what, how many people are working in uh, industries related to hard cider and, and what's the economic impact. We don't know yet. One of the things that's a little bit confusing about that, too, which uh, it means that we need to do more careful research, is that uh, there are a number of licensed cideries in New York State, but cider is also made by um, wineries and breweries, and uh, and so we're trying to, to uh, get a better way of um, evaluating those metrics. And it is a priority for us now too, as we're you know starting with a uh, a fairly new New York Cider Makers Association, uh, and we're we're trying to get a, a just a, a clearer sense of what our industry is now and and. Uh, and its uh, trajectory as we're kind of moving forward. So, so we are trying to uh, find a better answer to your question. Do you think, um, Dan, do you think that uh, cider will be a real uh, sort of vehicle for economic revival in upstate New York, which I know has struggled for the last few decades, you know, between dairy farms going down and various other, you know, pressures on farmland? Um, do you think cider is going to revive the area? 
Um, I I would like to think that it will have an, a positive impact that way. I think that it, a little bit of it depends on on uh, the uh, how the cider industry uh, expands and develops. And uh, cider is made in a, in a, a variety of, of ways. But if as much as much as we can uh, can cultivate a market for ciders that really reflect the quality of apples that are, are grown and managed in a certain way that develop flavors in cider that appeal to the customers and, and develop a, kind of a, an appreciation in you know in customers for these uh, the, these more special qualities in certain apple varieties that will have a direct impact on farms that grow those varieties. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, I guess, in contrast to, you know, the, the bigger mass market ciders. If, if, the, uh, if the industry is, um, you know, uh, predominates or, or grows in that direction uh, to the expense of the, you know, the smaller craft producers, then uh, we, we don't know what, what kind of impact it will have. I think that, it, it, you know, there will be, um, uh, certainly there will be successes and there will be, uh, uh, individual farms that will do well, and but the hope is that uh, that you know orchardists, uh, maybe those who aren't even interested in making cider, will see the benefit to growing uh, these apple varieties to to cater to that industry, and that that will be uh, uh, have a positive impact on their farms and, and a way of diversifying their their farms too. Sure, absolutely. Um, uh, Ian, I, I noticed um, on both of your re- websites that. Um, you guys have tasting notes that, you know, sound like the kinds of tasting notes you'd see for a Bordeaux or a Burgundy or something like that. So um, can you talk a little bit about how cider makers develop blends? Because that sort of speaks directly to your experience at Cornell, where you were, you know, teaching how to, I guess, grow apples and what different genes or different species of apples. Because I know it's an ever-evolving um, product in a way, isn't it? Aren't they always developing new new for- what what would you call it? Is it not a species? New varieties, new varietals. Yeah, new varieties. But the cider, most of the apples that we use for cider are actually traditional. They're, they're more likely to be heirloom or antique varieties mm-hmm. from uh, the eastern U.S. or France or England or uh, northern Spain. So we, um, how do you do the blends? That's really the art of cider making. Mm-hmm. Um, it. You start with a lot of apples. I mean, we grow about 125 varieties in our orchard, and you can kind of divvy those up as uh, sharps or apples that have a lot of acid. Uh, other apples may be very aromatic. They have so they're going to contribute aromas that you want in the cider, and then there are others that uh, have a lot of tannin that will give you sort of a texture and a mouthfeel, a uh, kind of a complexity in the cider, and uh, most ciders, they really are, in terms of how you make them, typically more like a Bordeaux than a California Cabernet Sauvignon or a Riesling, in that most hard ciders are blends. Uh, there are very right. few apples that w- where you can produce a really good cider from a single apple variety. Uh-huh. There are a few. There's Kingston Black is one that's well-known for that. So basically we're blending, and typically uh, we do the blending in the tank as we're making the cider. We uh-huh. usually do 1,000 liter lots, so it's a big stainless steel tank. And within that tank, there will be at least a half a dozen apple varieties. Some of them are sharps that you want to, to get the acidity uh, 
good. Some of them may have very high sugar content that gives you the alcohol, and then others have uh, aromatic properties or, or tannins or uh, contribute some other kind of subjective uh, quality to the cider. Mm-hmm. And then after the tank ferments, there's a second blending stage where you'll often blend, you know, one tank with another to get a, to, typically you're trying to make a cider that you've made before that people really liked and to get something that's that's similar in quality and, and uh, you know, character, mm-hmm. you generally need to blend. And um, Dan, when you blend, because <clears throat> I'm assuming you follow the same how did it's you? Not exactly the same, but yeah, those are. Uh, I agree with everything Ian says there. Yeah. So, how did you guys? I mean, how did you develop your signature blends? I mean, you you have about what six or eight different uh, mm-hmm. labels of hard cider, and and Ian, you have six, I think, for Black Diamond, right? And yep. so, so Dan, you. Um, when you started blending your apples, did you know sort of what you were going for, or did it kind well, of evolve I, I, in a natural I, I, way? Yeah, Ian's absolutely right in saying that uh, you know the best ciders with uh, the greatest complexity are blends. Uh, and when we first um, began making our hard cider, we we tested that uh, hypothesis by making uh, single variety hard ciders out of everything we can get a hold of. Mm-hmm. To find out which notes uh, came through in different ciders, and then, uh, and then, as Ian pointed out, the art is uh, in developing a blend of uh, flavors that um, we find interesting. Um, when we started making cider, uh, we were we knew that our local customer base had little experience with hard cider, and we wanted to kind of uh, express some of the excitement we had about cider. So we. Uh, we we um, we came out originally with a with a, a range from very dry and still ciders, through um, sparkling ciders, and all the way up to ice cider, which uh, was we we started out with too. To, mm-hmm. So um, ranging from very dry to kind of dessert sweet styles of cider, um, and then it's um, you know it's a, it's a continuing evolution and exploration as we. Uh, we're, we're experimenting every year to find, uh, you know, the, the next blend that we we think might fit our portfolio, mm-hmm. and that's part of the fun of it too. Is just to, it, you know, it's also in tasting everybody else's ciders and and uh, uh, and and you know, learning from from what we taste. Very interesting. I mean, so, but I, I guess one thing that was I was wondering about is is are apples that consistent year over year um, that you can sort of make up a recipe and then know that next year it's going to taste pretty much the same and and you know you don't have to worry about deviations from you know I don't know climate or soil conditions or something like that. It's all it's it's that uh, reliable. Well, there are two things that I, I, I we we make our cider still in single variety batches. And we follow rough uh, recipes for the different blends we have. But one thing that we're uh, doing single variety batches allows us to do is to is to tweak the ratios a little bit so right. we can get a little bit of consistency. On the other hand, you know this is uh, this is really making a wine, and uh, I think uh, it's you know consistency is a, is a target, but it's not a um, a hard and fast rule. And I, and one of the things I find. It, um, Intriguing is the is the seasonal variety, you know, variation, um, mm-hmm. and and I think that that's something that we can promote to let people know that this really is tied to 
to to different crops of apples that there are uh, you know climatic or seasonal uh, uh, variations that um, I think uh, add more interest to the to cider. Mm-hmm, very much so. a different story to tell. Yeah, I, I think that's fascinating. Um, we're going to take a short break now, guys, and uh, listen to a sponsor drop and a little music, and then we'll be right back with um, Ian Merwin and Dan Wilson talking about cider making. We're going to talk about cider around the world now. Today's program is brought to you by Brooklyn Slate Company, a manufacturer of slate cheese boards, coasters, and other fine items. Brooklyn Slate Company is a collaborative effort from Brooklyn graphic designer Sean Tice and Parsons graduate student Christy Hadica. After visiting Christy's family slate quarry in upstate New York in the spring of 2009, the two grabbed a few pieces for use as all-purpose boards back home in Brooklyn and began gifting pieces to friends. The response was so overwhelmingly positive that the two struck out to produce a line of slate products. We encourage you to visit brooklynslate.com for more. You can also get your own Brooklyn Slate care package by becoming a super fan member of Heritage Radio Network. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate for more. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. We're talking cider today um, in honor of uh, the Cider Week that just passed. And I hope this will um, encourage people to continue to seek out ciders in restaurants around New York and beyond. Um, Our guests are uh, Dan Wilson, who runs uh, the Slybro Cider House, and Ian Merwin, who has uh, Black Diamond Cider. Um, Guys, let's talk a little bit about the distinction between what you are making as craft brewers, I guess one would call it, um, and sort of the the sort of typical, you know, six-pack. Ian, why don't you address that, the sort of six-pack ciders you referred to when we were corresponding? Um, So it's a pretty fundamental distinction, and the bottom line is the mass market or six-pack ciders are typically made from apple juice concentrate, not from the juice of fresh apples. So Hmm. juice concentrate is basically made by boiling down sweet cider in a, a big plant, a juice plant, um, and it, it gets rid of the water, concentrates the sugar usually up to 70-75%, and then it's put in barrels uh, or tanker trucks, and it can be shipped from one side of the world to the other or from one part of New York State to another. So it's a, huh. it's a global commodity uh, made by processing apples. Craft ciders or artisanal ciders, uh, by definition, are made from uh, apples that are fresh pressed and then fermented. And do you require? Does it? Do you have to put yeast in them, like beer or no? I mean, I remember uh, when we were little, you, we didn't. We would make hard cider by accident. <laughs> yeah, you can. Uh, I mean, if you press apples and put them in a barrel, they'll start fermenting because there's yeast everywhere. Uh, ah. Especially in a 
know, an apple barn or a cidery, there's yeast literally floating in the air and on every surface. So, but if you're trying to make a specific kind of hard cider, usually uh, you will inoculate with a, a strain of yeast, and a lot of what we use are actually uh, champagne yeasts. That have been really? In, in France. Huh. Champagne uh, yeasts or white wine yeast tend to work fairly well for ciders for a number of reasons. Oh, interesting. Um, um, why don't you um, describe for a moment uh, the global market for apples? And wh- where, where does the other fruit come from? I know, um, and you, just, you said China was a competitor, um, Chile. Wh- why, I never think of China as being a big apple producer. They don't have well, that much weren't. arable land. 25 years ago, they weren't. Um, but when, they, when China changed its land tenure policy in the 1980s, uh, and enabled you know, families to have a couple of acres of land to work. Mm. Apples were one of the crops that they encouraged people to do. So they, traditionally they'd grown a lot of Asian pears and a few local apple varieties, but they just went into it the way they do in China. You know, <laughs> 1.3 billion people and a couple million of them start growing apples. Uh, within a decade, they were the number one apple producer in the world. Amazing. Unfortunately, initially, the quality of their fruit was pretty dicey, um, and they grow almost entirely one variety, which is Fuji. Uh, uh-huh. It's a very sweet apple with very little acidity and a kind of a bland flavor, uh, and it does not make a particularly good hard cider. But because the quality of the fruit was, was uh, not uh, up to snuff for exporting it, or they, they juiced a lot of it, so they... They became the number one global apple juice concentrate supplier. And um, other major sources, uh, Eastern Europe, right now, Poland and Hungary, there's mm. a lot of juice concentrate made there. Uh, Chile and Argentina, even southern Brazil, uh, produce some juice concentrate. So there's, there's one market for juice concentrate. There's a really different market for fresh apples. And uh, the U.S. consumes most of our apples domestically. Some mostly during the off-season, primarily from Chile and New Zealand. And that's because, of course, their seasons are reversed from ours. So right. Fresh-harvested apples from the Southern Hemisphere in, in late winter. Uh, so they're very different markets. And uh, New Zealand, for example, uh, exports, I don't think they export any juice concentrate. Uh, they're just in the fresh market apple business. Mm-hmm. And the juice concentrate is used um, for sort of um, mass market cider and also for things like Mott's apple juice and stuff like it, that? Yes, exactly. Yeah. If you read the back of your apple juice can, you know, that you buy at the supermarket, it'll say this contains apple products that can be from, and there's a long list of countries, and actually in that one can there might be juice concentrate that's come from Poland, China, Chile, and wow. who knows, uh, Italy, maybe. Hmm. So it's, There's uh, another really thing that happened in, in terms of, in, Ian, I might be oversimplifying this, you could fill this out, but my understanding was that uh, when China first became a, a big player in the, uh, the worldwide market of apples, and that, that really uh, originally um, meant apple juice concentrate, um, it had a huge impact on the New York apple industry because, especially in western New York, there was a, a whole segment of the apple-growing um, uh, uh, um, 
you know, uh, of apple growing that was focused on growing for processing and growing for juice. So there are, you know, orchards and varieties that were uh, designed to, to meet that market. Uh, but when China came on the scene and they, they were accused uh, originally of, of uh, selling for much less than the uh, cost of production, mm. it kind of the, the floor went out in the market for uh, these more locally sourced apples. So there was a, uh, a quite a lot of, um, or there, it was a setback for the New York industry, but also it forced a lot of uh, growers to, uh, to kind of um, um, refocus their crops or, or grow uh, different varieties more for the fresh market. Uh, and I think that there's still a sense of re- uh, trying to recover from that. That's actually one of the, the that's a point that gets made in the conversation around hard cider is that uh, by growing these special varieties, um, there may be uh, a new opening for, you know, for juice quality or high quality juice apples uh, that are, you know, that are used locally for a more specialized kind of product. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Um, what's, uh, Ian, why don't you answer this first and then Dan, you can, you can chime in too. But what's the difference between the kind of hard cider that you guys are making and say like British cider or French cider, both of which are, um, you know, really popular drinks in Europe. Um, certainly hard cider in a British pub is kind of like, you know, it's definitely the alt- equally as popular as beer. Um, what 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 is I mean? Are those flavor notes as carefully crafted as yours, or is it more of a one size fits all kind of style there? No, it's uh, both England and France and Spain uh, have both craft and mass market cider sectors. Oh. So it's I'm always a little hesitant to to make a generalization, but most people I think would agree that British ciders typically are a little higher in alcoholic strength. Mm-hmm. They tend to be a little more bitter. They have more of the bittersweet fruit. Um, and most of the British ciders that get exported to the U.S. are their mass-market ciders. Uh, right. Bulmers, for example, or Thatcher's. France has a very large craft cider sector, and it's it's very differentiated, uh, very evolved. It's like they make, in Normandy, they make ciders that are very different than in Brittany or Picardy or, or other areas of the Loire Valley. So it's, Wow. It's a very complex and interesting industry. Uh, French ciders, in general, are lower in alcoholic strength uh, and tend to be fairly sweet, With and the tannins tend to be a little more at the soft, astringent end of the tannin flavor spectrum rather than at the harder, more bitter end. Mm-hmm. So it's um, every country that has this tradition of making cider has a range of cider styles and and covers the spectrum of both mass market and local craft ciders. Mm-hmm. Um, Dan, do you model some of your ciders after some of those uh, European ciders, or do you do you feel like New York State and cider makers up there are are really trying to create their own sort of style and brand, as it were? Well, I, I think what's happening is, as I see the the local market for cider expanding is certainly an interest in uh, in European cider varieties uh, because, by and large, unless you go to the, you know a um, uh, a dozen or so uh, uh, northeastern heritage varieties like South of Spitzenberg or uh, or Northern Spy or Golden Russet. 
those, those add a lot of interesting flavor to cider. But we don't have a lot of access to some of these more uh, flavorful varieties. So uh, there, the natural tendency is to kind of go to some of these uh, uh, European bittersweets and bitter sharps and, uh, and some French varieties, too. Um, I, the thing that I think that is interesting, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm also paying attention to this, is that, um, that, you know, in Europe they had this long, continuous, uninterrupted industry in cider that goes back centuries. Yes. And, and in the United States we're still trying to reinvent cider after it, it kind of uh, uh, it was completely um, um, wiped off the map by prohibition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as we are introducing new ciders into the market, it's also paying attention to the market and to try to find uh, the, the ciders we find that are interesting that are also uh, correspond to you know what the public is looking for in, in flavors. And by and, and to, to some extent, I think that uh, the, um, the, the the American market, the American flavor is. Is not quite uh, where where it is in uh, in any of the regions in Europe. Hmm. Um, yeah, you know, I think that people have been introduced to cider through some of the mass market brands of, you know, very uh, very you know sweet and fruity and and highly uh, um, effervescent um, yeah. things that are uh, that are available, and that the hope is that you know there'll be uh, uh, continuing exploration and. And people looking for new ciders to and, and an appreciation for ciders that are really focused on these um, these more uh, unique blends of apples. Uh, as we put more trees in the ground, though, it's, it's trying to figure out the, the the next stage in where the consumer market is going. And so we can kind of create this thing together, both with demand from uh, from the public and and from cider makers, uh, you know, putting out the next interesting. Um, uh, brand of cider. Mm-hmm. This is, I think, this is really fascinating. I mean, who knew? Yeah. I, you know, I hadn't really given a lot of thought, as I told you before. <laughs> I hadn't really thought a lot about cider, although I like it a lot. Um, and I lived in Europe enough to develop a taste for European ciders. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, it was, in fact, for a long time there was no cider to be had here. And then a friend of mine started bringing ciders, but they were not what you guys are selling at all. They were mass market, and I didn't really care uh-huh. for them. Um, let me ask you this: Does this State, are you getting a legislative or um, financial support from the state? Is there, you know, is there sort of some sort of support for the for the development of this industry in New York State? Do you find the the um, you know the legislation or the legislators at all helpful in in pushing this along? Yeah, uh, the reason we have twice as many commercial cider makers in New York State as any other state is because our state government has been incredibly proactive and progressive. Great. Uh, I talk to cider makers in other states, and I tell them what sort of a regulatory environment we work in here. They're generally very envious. Uh, (laughs) It's really started, uh, well, Mario Cuomo got the New York Farm Winery Act passed in the late 1970s, and that is what really created the wine industry in New York State as a diversified farm winery, estate wineries. Yeah. Andrew Cuomo, I think, is really doing something similar for uh, craft cider makers, craft distillers, and craft uh, brewers. They've, they've, in the last three or four years, they've passed a whole series of 
of new laws that liberalize things like distribution and where you can sell your cider, uh, how you make it. They, part of that law was that if you're a craft cider maker operating under a craft cider license, you're supposed to use New York apples, not uh-huh. imported fruit. So that, of course, created a big market for the New York apple growers. So uh, I, I think New York State is just totally uh, leading the nation in proactive, uh, nurturing, regulatory environments. Uh, and I, probably the biggest thing that would help the cider industry nationally would be if other states and the federal government through the, the TTB, which kind of regulates wines and ciders, if they would harmonize, they would start doing more of what New York State has done. It would be very helpful. So in terms of, like, making distribution across state lines, yeah, like smoothing the, the pathway lines, for that? Uh, alcohol content. Yeah. Um, you know, what your label has to look like. I mean, you mentioned right. earlier, is cider the same from year to year? And it's certainly not. It's like wine or vintage effects. But we're not allowed to put a vintage date on a bottle of hard cider. Oh. You can only do that for wine. So there's a, a law right there. It would be really nice if, if we could date our ciders because, in fact, if you make the same blend year after year, it's going to be a little different. And does cider keep the way wine does? I mean, can you put down a bottle of cider and, you know, and open it five years later and have a different flavor than you might have when you uh, first bottle it? Is there an evolution in the bottle, I it, guess? It will certainly change. I don't know how much it would improve. I think a difference, <laughs> uh, or at least a commonly understood difference between uh, cider and wine is that uh, it's it's most often drunk pretty fresh. Uh-huh. Uh, and I think partly because, like it, you know, as a, as a category, it's, it's a little lower alcohol than wine. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the, the storage potential is maybe a little bit reduced. Uh, in that way, you know, we we try to uh, make and sell cider, you know, within uh, 18 months of bottling, um, uh-huh. and then have new stuff available. Uh, it is, I think, a little bit fresher uh, cider or fresher uh, product than a wine. Yeah, no, no, that sounds like beer. How you find it again? I can't hang on to it that long anyway, so it's... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. beer is better when it's fresh, too. I mean, it makes total sense yeah. to me, because it's... What is the alcohol content, by the way, for cider, typically? You know, within a range, obviously. Usually 5 to 8%. And beer is usually 8 to 12, is that right? Uh, no, beer is usually lower. Beer really? Is typically 3 to uh, 7 or 8%, unless you get into some kind of high-octane ale. I mean, you can right. push it all the way up to 10%, but... Uh huh. Interesting. I didn't realize that. And can yeah, any... you know the the whole thing about aging? Uh, even most wines aren't aged. You know the the life expectancy of a bottle of wine and its purchase in the U.S. is about three hours. <laughs> I mean, the, the idea that there are all these people with cellars where they're aging their Bordeaux. Right. So. Yeah, I, I think that's sort of a, an Edwardian concept more than a modern exactly. day. <laughs> that's true. Um, but uh, can anyone make cider? I mean, is it hard? To, I was watching on Cider Week, you know, they had a whole street on Orchard Street, appropriately, um, with a, spider, a guy making cider right on the spot. He was making the pomace, you know, grinding the apples and then putting them through the press and everything. And I watched, you have a video on yours, Dan, on the, mm. isn't that you that has the, the video of the guy making cider? Or is that you, Ian? Yeah, it, it, well, uh, we've got to answer your question. Kind of yeah, anybody, anybody can make cider. Anyone can make uh, cider. Yeah. yeah. 
So anyone can, you know, as far as the um, one at a time, uh, please. Home home cider making project. It's probably a lot easier than making beer. Yeah, Uh, is you know, there's uh, just some simple guidelines to uh, to end up with a product that you really would like to drink. Uh, But that's um, you know, once you get a fermentation going, either naturally with uh, just a letting um, kind of endogenous or uh, just um, um, natural yeast take over, or you uh, you pitch uh, yeast um, and then control temperature just to kind of slow the, the fermentation down. Uh, you will end up with hard cider. Cool. Well, like I said, when I was a kid, we would buy fresh cider in one of those, you know, carboy jugs or whatever. Maybe not yeah. as big as a carboy, but you know, those glass jugs, and leave it out on the porch. And after a few weeks, if we hadn't drunk the whole thing, it would definitely have fermented by then. I must say, I loved that. Yeah. <laughs> Even it's as a child. To yeah, it was delicious. I loved that as a kid too. I, I heard you say that. <laughs> It was kind of magical, wasn't it? It was like, and then my well, mother would be like, too. "The yeast has a lot of vitamin B." So, oh, really? Well, oh yeah, it's good for you to drink partially fermented cider. Well, my mother was like, "No, you can't drink that anymore." I guess she thought I would get drunk, and I was, you know, of course, uh, I was, but I was already into beer at that age, so I was like seven or eight. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> and you've made a career of it. Uh, yeah, place. I've stayed in the food business. That's right. Anyway, you guys, I guess we have to wrap it up here. But I wanted you to get, have you, uh, you know, give you an opportunity to, um, you know, talk about your websites or promote something that you want to promote about Cider Week or how to get your ciders or whatever. Take it away, boys. Dan, why don't you start? Okay. Um, well, I, I would just encourage people who are interested in cider to keep exploring cider. I, um, the idea uh, that there is a wide range of flavors that are available. There's a, w- a wide range of ways that you can enjoy cider when paired with food or different occasions. And that, uh, we, we, you know, we hope that, um, uh, that we, you know, if anything else, if nothing else, we can encourage that. Uh, our website is slyboro.com, and uh, you can order online or learn a little bit more about our place and our process. And um, thanks for the opportunity. Oh, my pleasure. And Ian, what about uh, Black Diamond? Where is that found? Yeah, we have. We just distribute mostly within the Finger Lakes region. Uh, some of our stuff, our cider, gets shipped down to New York or out of state. But mm-hmm. We're primarily a local producer, and we self-distribute. I spend every Wednesday driving around with a with a pickup truck full of cases and cakes of cider. Um, our wow. websites, there's one for the farm and our apples called incredapples.com. And then there's a second one for the cidery, which is blackdiamondcider.com. And I think Dan said it very well. Cider, the wonderful thing about cider is it's kind of a no-holds-barred, it's all new. People are making hop ciders and ginger-flavored ciders. Ooh, yummy. It's really pretty exciting because there's a, a tremendous range of ciders out there and a lot of people who are new to ciders. So just get on out and uh, taste some, and in particular the, the drier um, ciders, many of which we're making in the Finger Lakes, are they're very food-friendly, so I'd encourage people to Instead of getting a bottle of wine for that dinner, uh, consider getting a 750-milliliter bottle of uh, a local hard cider. You'll find I think it goes really well with the meal. Sounds great. I'm definitely going to take a trip up to those cideries this summer mm. or fall. Yeah. Fall is a good time. People can people yeah, come and have, have tastings? Uh, there are different cider weeks around the state. The mm-hmm. Finger Lake Cider Week is usually uh, from about the 2nd to the 10th or 12th of October. Hudson Valley Cider Week, I think, was June last year. I'm not sure when they'll do it next year. 
And then, of course, New York City, you just finished your cider That's week. Right. So there, this stuff is all on the web. Um, and if you keep your ears peeled, you could really, um, I think as the industry develops, we're going to have sort of consecutive cider weeks probably for most of the summer and into the fall. That sounds great. Someplace in the state. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thanks a lot, you guys, for joining me today. This was fun and informative. I learned a lot from both of you, and uh, I wish you the best with the ciders. And I'll be drinking them today. I'm going to get some today. (laughs) Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you. So long, guys. And now I want to have a little talk with my listeners. You know, this Heritage Radio Network was an experiment. It started, uh, I think, in 2009. I was right here at the beginning, and here I still am, still doing my thing. Um, But it has grown into something that is so much greater than I think any of us who uh, started with it ever dreamed it would be. I mean, we are the only radio network that is exclusively devoted to food and drink. And uh, the kinds of guests, the caliber of guests, uh, the amount of information that we have archived and that we are going to continue to archive and put out there, and especially... um, you know, as food becomes more of a kind of political issue, uh, I think that it's really important to educate yourselves about our food systems, whether you're talking about the restaurant industry or farming or uh, new tastes, new styles, uh, how technology affects food. These are all things that are explored on Heritage Radio Network. We are launching our fall fundraising drive. And we need every single one of you to step up and donate to our station. It's really easy to do. There's a donate button on our website, our fancy new website. And um, you can start at, you know, at as small a donation as you feel you can manage, or you can go up to uh, $60 or $120 for membership. Um, And then if you're a business that listens regularly, or you have a business that you think would be a good fit with us, um, there's all kinds of business packages and sponsorship opportunities that we offer as well. So I think it's really important to support this radio station because there really is nothing else like it on the airwaves. And we all really do this straight from the heart. And we look for the most interesting topics, the very best guests that we can find. And I think by and large, most of us succeed really well in doing that. So I hope you will open your pocketbooks and show your appreciation uh, during this fall fundraising drive. And I thank you very, very much in advance for doing so. That's all for now, folks. Take care and see you next week. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 